Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, this week's guest is someone who will be well-known to many of the listeners of the podcast and someone we've absolutely needed to have on the podcast. So I'm incredibly excited to welcome Joseph Dunn to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. For more than 25 years, Joseph has worked at the highest levels of Louisiana's tourism and cultural industries. For three years, he was the executive director of the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, CODAFIL. And he currently oversees communications, public relations, and marketing efforts at Laura, Louisiana's Creole Heritage Site. He has held positions at the Consulate General of France in New Orleans, the Office of the Lieutenant Governor, and the Louisiana Office of Tourism. And what is absolutely amazing, a ridiculous accomplishment, Joseph was inducted as a Chevalier dans l'Ordre National du Mérite by decree of the President of the French Republic. We will certainly talk about that. Joseph, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Oh man, Jesse, thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here and I am absolutely honored to be among all the other amazing people that you have interviewed. It's, it's, it's very humbling to be in such um, renowned company. So thanks for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to this. I'm gonna be put it right out the beginning. Mike already, because I'm like, Mike, I'm thinking this could go like, seven days and he's like he's like no we can't, we can't do that but anyway so before we get going on kind of a number of the topics i'd like to talk about can i just get your story so where are you from where did you find french oh my goodness it's a it's kind of a a meandering story actually my uh, i'm in louisiana um my family's been in louisiana since the 17 teens and i have you know ancestors that came here directly from france i also have ancestors that meandered after the acadian exile were in france for 25 years and were with the last group of acadians to arrive in louisiana in 1786 oh, wow. so the louisiana french roots are very very deep uh, and so how did I find French? Well, you know, I knew that I had, even from a little boy, my mother was very interested in, ge in genealogy. And so she spent hours and hours in archives and reading books and, you know, everything back then in, in the seventies, that was all these written accounts. And so sure. you would go to cemeteries and you would go to courthouses and those places to dig through things and try to find elderly relatives and Bibles and all that. So I knew from a very young age that I had French ancestry, Louisiana French ancestry. My grandparents had friends who were from South Louisiana, who were native French speakers. They spent a lot of time together. So I heard the language when I was really young, even though I was brought up in English, I was educated in English and French sure. had, had, had gone away in my family a few generations before I came along. Um, and what's interesting in, in listening to your, your podcast and all your other guests is uh, I, I've just learned so much about the similarities of what was happening up in, in New England with the Franco-American populations and what was happening here. You guys are a little bit closer generationally to French than some of us are, because sure. in, in our case, it can be two or three generations back. And for for y'all, I will just say y'all because I'm from Louisiana. <laughs> um, and for, and for, because it just is a natural way that I talk. But um, so so for y'all, it's a lot closer. It's like one generation back or maybe two generations back. But uh, it it just kind of was this weird genetic memory almost. And that's the only way I can explain it. Even from the time that I was a, a little kid, it just came really, really naturally to me. And when I was in French as a second language classes in fourth grade, we had teachers that came to my area from Switzerland oh, wow. and it, I, it just, it just clicked. It just That's immediately awesome. clicked. And so, you know, I don't really have a real memory of not speaking French. I've always spoken it either, you know, a little bit and, and gradually over the years, obviously it's become much more, much more fluent. So uh, that's, that's kind of the, the French story. No, that is so cool. Now, and how is it that you decided that you were going to make French, the language, the heritage, the culture, a huge part of your life and obviously the main focus of your professional life. I'll just say it like this. It's like a bad drug. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's like a bad drug. It's like an addiction. And I just kind of fell into it. And 
I think I started seeing all these things that were just so integrally part of the Louisiana experience that could only really be expressed in French. And that that realization and that ability to articulate some of that happened over over many, many years. And I still sometimes struggle to really articulate some of the things that that are very clear to me in my head, but you know, that that sort of take a little while to condense down and and make understandable or put it in bite-sized pieces for other people because it's a very complex story. Sure. But with with my own story, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when I was a kid and they were very good storytellers. Awesome. And I was and I grew up in, in the country on a farm. I spent a lot of time on my grandparents' farm. So the summertime was really spent with you know, the big garden and doing all that stuff with the garden and you know picking and snapping beans, shelling peas, shucking corn and all of that. And my grandparents were just incredible storytellers. And my sister and I would sit on the front porch of the house in the rocking chairs under the whirring uh, ceiling fans and just listen to them tell stories. And at some point, I was like, you know, how how can I tell stories? Like, how can I, how can I pay my bills by telling stories? And sure. I was just really, really lucky to, to, you know, constantly find opportunities where I could speak French, tell stories and uh, people saw value in that and have, 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 uh, you know, financially valorized me in, in doing that and professionally valorized me in doing that. So I'm, I'm very, very lucky in, in that sense to have been able to pursue and, and create this path for myself where French is really at the center of my, of my professional development for the past almost 30 years now. That is so very, very cool. All right. So I got a number of topics but before I do, I want to just touch on some of the things I mentioned in the bio and the first, I think the majority of our listeners are from New England, may not be super familiar with Codafil. What is Codafil? Codafil is the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana, and it was founded in 1968. It is the only state agency of its kind in the United States that has as its legislative mandate and mission the preservation and development of heritage languages. And in Louisiana, that's French and Creole, because the Creole aspect is there as well. Yeah, uh, one we'll of the things, that, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, <laughs> uh, we, we could talk for seven days. We really could. That's right. So, yeah. so that's what Codafil is. And so Codafil has been in existence since 1968. Uh, I was director from 2011 through 2014. Uh, and it was an incredible experience, an incredible political experience, because I, I don't think anybody realizes to what extent the, the, French thing in Louisiana is very political on the personal scale, on sure. the on the government scale, on the community scale. And it's it's pretty complicated. It's pretty, pretty complicated. And there are lots of similarities again here with what you y'all have experienced up there with you know forced assimilation, with Americanization, uh, with all of that. But you know, one of the things that makes it so much more complicated here is the diversity of the populations that we have. So, you know, there's a, a huge African com component in Louisiana. There's a huge Native American component. And just as Americanization has has occurred and the way that society has developed through this American English speaking lens with segregation, Jim Crow, and all sure. of that, our French and Creole speaking communities are very fractured. I mean, I, I like to describe it as a mosaic that has been kind of shattered or a beautiful stained glass window that's kind of been shattered where you have all those pieces of it that are now scattered out. And the big challenge is try to put some of it back together so that it becomes as, as beautiful as it was and as it can be. Incredibly complicated. I honestly, I get a couple of things we'll get to, but I did not appreciate, I watched your presentation that you gave in October, which was amazing uh the i saw that documentary which was amazing just this entire world i was not familiar with at all but uh, before we get to that quick uh, you mentioned laura what, what i mentioned laura sorry what is laura laura is a former sugar plantation so I always say this when I do sales presentations or when I do presentations. So when you say plantation, everybody has an idea about what that is visually sure. and what that's supposed to be. Laura is not any of that. It's the absolute opposite architecturally. It's the absolute opposite in the way that we present the story. This, it's, it's a raised 
wooden villa, basically. And so if your listeners can imagine what a big raised house, for example, in the French Caribbean might look like. It's very similar to that. It's basically the same thing. Uh, so it was a sugar plantation that was owned by a Louisiana French family that had been here since the colonial period. And it was opened in 1994 as a historic site. And so there we tell the story of four generations of one Louisiana Creole family in all of their complexity and in all of their uh, you know, unvarnished uh, opening all of the, not the closets, but all of the armoire and mm. you know, letting all of the skeletons out for this story. Because in this one family are white people, black people, free people, and enslaved people. They're all Creoles. They're all members of the same family. And so we sort of take a walk in the footsteps of, of, of those people and explore and explore deeply the, the, the complexities of what their lives were like, because it wasn't the American South that they were living in. They were living in this extension of the French colonial experience, which is not at all our perception of what or the perception that we learn in school, for example, of, of what was was happening here. You, you've read my stuff, you, you, you've seen you know, my presentations and things like that. So you know that I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of presenting a story, not through an American lens, but through a French uh, Louisiana lens, which is sometimes very much in conflict with the way that we learn this story and, and, these, and this history. Super fascinating. That's amazing. But one more, one more piece of the bio before we get to the meat of the interview. I mentioned the Chevalier dans l'ordre national du mérite. You're actually the second one we've had who, who have had oh, that award cool, on cool, the podcast. Cool. We had Lise Verineau of Vermont. We okay. had a podcast right after she got the award. So for those who may have missed that episode, quickly, what is it? And where were you when you found out about it? Because I would have lost my absolute mind. This is so cool. Well, it is after, so there are different, degrees of quote unquote knighthoods or these kinds of recognitions that the French government gives to people. At the top of that is the Legion of Honor. That is usually going to people who are veterans or who have done just really, really outstanding, amazing kinds of things. The second order is l'Ordre National du Mérite, which is uh, what I was honored with. And below that, you have the L'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres. And that's usually going to people who work in culture and art. And then there are the Pams Académiques, which go to people in education. Before the last of the previous consul general left Louisiana to go back to Paris after his, his uh, posting here, the day before he left, he invited me to have a coffee with him. And he told me over coffee. So <laughs> that's... Uh, that's, That's kind of so how, how I uh, how I found out, and it it was obviously a, a complete surprise, especially that level. It's pretty big. Um, it's really big, and and I'm still kind of kind of under the 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 shock of that because I've I've said this to several people. When you're in the midst of doing the work, you don't often see how perhaps big it is or, or what reach it has or what impact it has because you're just doing the work. When I sit back and look at the resume or when you read what you just read, it's almost like hearing somebody else's story and not mine because I'm just in the midst of it doing it. Yeah, I mean, to be recognized at such an incredibly high level by the government of France for a lifetime dedicated to French topics and the impact you've had is it's incredible. That's absolutely awesome. That's it it is, and my, and, and my kids are already fighting over the medal to see which one gets it when I die. <laughs> As you say, yeah. maybe just wear it around the house sometime. No, when we went to when we went to dinner after the we went to dinner after the ceremony, they were arguing over which of them gets the medal when I die. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> That's terrific. All right, so the first big topic that I wanted to touch on um, is something that kind of came up a little bit in the documentary, if I recall. Um, and I could be wrong. It's about an observation that I made when I was in Quebec. Because it's my impression that when you're talking to somebody from New England and they call themselves French, they're referring to something that would come up on a DNA test. Whereas in Quebec, they seemed their identity seemed way less focused on what would come up on a DNA test than what language you spoke when you were at home. In that everybody seemingly was a Francophone, Anglophone, or something else. And it was really hard to be in two of those boxes. So I'm curious, what does that look like in Louisiana? So uh, we're recording this on Zoom, and 
the audience can't see me shaking my head as you're <laughs> as you're talking to me, which is exactly what I do when I listen to the podcast in my car when I'm driving back and forth to work. I'm like talking, I'm talking to you and your guests as as y'all are having the That's conversations, awesome. um, and and shaking my head. Uh, it's it's this absolutely this this idea of of how we define identity, right? And that's something that I've really learned uh, over the past few years of looking at how identity building happens in Quebec, how it happens in Acadie, how it happens in the, the Francophone minority populations outside of Quebec. This whole di- idea of language as a central piece of identity in the United States, we don't have that. Because if you think about, for example, when you go to the doctor or you go to someplace where you have to fill out forms, all those little check boxes are basically skin color and racial check boxes. None of them relates to language. And so in Canada, language is a central piece of identity and they don't have the same kinds of check boxes that we do. So that comes back to this idea about how we are formatted within this sort of Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, white, paradigm, if you will, of, of how we see ourselves. We, we see ourselves as white or black or Native American or Asian or those things. And language is not part of that central piece of identity within this, uh, within this American context. And if we look at that in Louisiana, we had exactly the same thing. Okay. And for example, okay, everybody is now familiar with the term Cajun, And there are also ideas about the term Creole. Those have become very racialized identities over the last 60, 70 years or so, because as the language shifted from French to English, and as the school children in English-only schools were then forcibly assimilated into the American mainstream and into the English language, their benchmarks for identity shifted from language and culture to skin color. So these are kind of heady concepts for most people because they're just not things that, you know, everyday people are are, are going to be thinking about because we live in a majority English language society. It's our default language. Uh, So the the idea of, of language as, you know, a central piece of identity is not something that, you know, most people in the United States think about. Yeah, I think... We definitely want to touch upon this more because I found it super fascinating. In fact, I remember my mom's been a history teacher, U.S. history teacher for almost like 40 years. So I got in touch with her immediately after I I, I saw this on the presentation because I always just assumed uh, that the French in Louisiana, they were Cajuns. I did not know this entire history of the word Cajun and that it has not been in common usage for 200 years. The whole thing is super fascinating if you go into that, for sure. In no matter what what place you are, no matter where you are in the world, the people who control the language control the economy and the politics, right? So if you have a minority population that can be a cohesive group of people that's rallied around that language, that then presents an economic and political threat to the majority language status quo. The, I, what happens in Louisiana is that all of this gets, gets splintered in the late 1960s. Justement, I don't often have this conversation in English, so I'm struggling to, to I'm, I'm struggling to like put the words right. Um, well, better than I would be doing in French, that's for sure. So, you know, if you had a million people in Louisiana, for example, which is kind of what the estimate is, in 1970, who were white, black, Native American, all speaking French. And as the French language renaissance began in the late 1960s, early 1970s, if those people had been able to come together as a, as a political group, as an economic group, they represented at that time one third to a quarter of the population. That posed a pretty significant threat to you know the the english language status quo and obviously that couldn't be allowed to happen and there are there were articles written in the local newspapers and you know even there there was some concern in the u.s congress that louisiana might become another quebec with a separatist movement with all of that if 
if that were allowed to happen. And so the, the guy who was the founder of Code of Law, his name was James Dumanjou, had to like calm these politicians down uh, so that you know, a lot of the, the French stuff could move forward. And that's really, it's, it's fascinating that it's just kind of right there that you see this sort of, this sort of split where sort of this Cajun identity emerges from beneath the Creole umbrella. And, you know, once upon a time, a bit before the 1920s, you had these two opposing identities in Louisiana, Creole, which meant French speaking, and American, which meant English speaking. It's the same like in, in Canada where you say French or English, right? There, there was a, opposing, opposing identities. But here in Louisiana, it was Creole versus American. And under each of those umbrellas, Creole and American, you had in the 19th century, white people, black people, free people, enslaved people. And all of them had these conflicting languages and cultures and religions, Catholic versus Protestant. And these are, these are not things that even us in Louisiana, even we don't have these, these, these filters or these benchmarks anymore. It was a huge deal in 1960 when John F. Kennedy was running for president because he was Catholic. That's not a big deal anymore because these kinds of tensions between Protestants and Catholics don't exist so much anymore like they did once upon a time. And so, you know, uh, how many years later are we now? More than 60 years later, you know, the, the, the filters for all of that have changed. The benchmarks for all of that have changed. And our relationship to these different labels has, has all changed. And so that's constantly, constantly evolving. Coming back to the idea of, uh, of, of Canada, you know, you look at once upon a time in the colonial period, Canadians were, les Canadiens were just, they were French speakers. Yeah. Then you have French, les Canadiens Français, then later Québécois. So there have been several different steps and words and evolutions in that, in that identity sphere as well. So, you know, there, there are parallel things happening uh, all over the place, all the time. David, remember, I think, wrote about it in his book that for a lot of people, it was definitely true of my grandfather, when they referred to Canada, they were talking about Quebec. Mm -hmm. It was the people who, the rest of Canada, I think it would be like the Langlais. It was like the, the mm -hmm. Canadians lived in Quebec, and then it was like the English people who kind of lived everywhere else. But is there, I guess, with the word, because this whole Cajun versus Creole thing, again, I found incredibly fascinating. It's a story we don't get up here. Is there You're going to get me in trouble. You're going to get uh, me in trouble, man. Well, we can always edit it. If, <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, it's, fine. We'll it's fine. It's fine. It's all good. Is it, is it something almost as simple as if you were a white guy in Louisiana, you're more likely to call yourself a Cajun? Whereas if you're something else, you're more likely to self-identify as Creole? Today... Yes, historically, no. Up until up until the 1960s, Cajun was an epithet. Like if somebody called you a Cajun, that was close to the N word. Not quite as bad, but it was close. Yeah. And it just meant re it, it was very pejorative. It meant like a poor, illiterate, like yeah, it, it wasn't something that anybody wanted to be called. But then I mean, if you look at other other of the sort of ethnic pride movements in the 1960s that were going on. So, um, you know, the, the black pride movements and things like that, there's, there's some parallels to be drawn with that. And these people taking the people who are of Acadian descent, taking this word Cajun, reappropriating it for themselves and becoming very proud of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. But you have, we have to go back to the aftermath of the civil war because Louisiana was a French and French and Creole speaking space. And a lot of the power and the wealth was controlled by white Creoles. So these were the descendants of the colonists who had come directly from France and, and Spain for the most part. Um, they controlled a lot of the wealth and a lot of the politics, but they had in this very multi-racial society, family members, brothers, sisters, cousins, who were what we call free people of color, gens de couleur libre, who were property owners, who were very well educated. And then there's a 15-year period from 1862 until 1877 when Louisiana was occupied by the Union Army during the Civil War. So the Union Army is American. 
right. they're, they're American. And so they speak English. And so during that time period, what's going to happen is that the white Creoles are going to try to appropriate for themselves the term Creole in order to have the Americans understand that those black people over there who were calling themselves Creole were not really Creole so that they could try to re regain wow. their, their economic and their political footing. So this caused a great schism in how things were going to play out. And then the former free people of color eventually over time are going to, at some point, they, they stay pretty insular for, for many, many years, for decades, actually. And then in the 1960s, have to ally themselves with what are now called African-Americans, so Afro-descendants who are American, sure. um, so English speakers and Protestants, in this new political paradigm where you know, they're fighting for civil rights, they're fighting for all of that, because they had to, they had to be in a block together. I mean, it's kind of sort of, sort of like a, a minority government, right? Where right. you know, if you've got all these little minorities together, then you have to pull everybody together to create a block to move things forward. Uh, so that's kind of what happens. But and and we almost need a an illustration and a timeline to visually see how all of this plays out uh, because it's very, very complicated. It's all about politics. It's all about economy. It's all about, it's all about control and who's going to control the narrative. It is incredibly complicated, incredibly fascinating, I think, because it's so complicated in a lot of ways. But now, because something you mentioned, I guess, a few times now, how much in Louisiana, the politics, I mean, the language issue is heavily involved in politics. Like there's, there's political implications when we talk about the language issue. So one of my favorite questions I'm going to ask again here, uh, which I think is interesting, is there a French vote now in Louisiana? And no, no. When, no. when did that disappear? That probably, or, that, dis that, that really began to disappear 100 years ago. That kind of disappeared really? in the 1920s because it, it, it was in 19, on June 18th, 1921, Article 12 of the 12th piece of the Constitution of the state of Louisiana says um, that all of the exercises in the public schools shall be conducted only in the English language. So before 1921, there were French language schools here, there were bilingual schools, so there was an educated class of people who spoke, read, and write in French. How do you control a population? You take their language away from them, and you make them speak another language, and you, you divide and you conquer them. Because there were, again, white people and people of color who were highly literate. And sure. in the 19th century, in the 19th century, literacy rates among people of color who were Francophones were higher than white Francophones because they really saw the, the, the power and the benefit of, of education because that's how they maintained their, their rights and that's how they were able to acquire property and, and actually do things, uh, become you know, merchants and become professionals, uh, doctors and lawyers and all of that. But that's kind of when the, the, the idea of the French vote pretty much disappeared. However, 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 like moving, moving, moving forward to 1960, when uh, John F. Kennedy was campaigning for president, his wife, Jackie, spoke French perfectly. And they were at the Crowley Rice Festival in Southwest Louisiana, and she delivered the campaign speech in French. And that's when John F. Kennedy won Louisiana. That is terrific. No, that's super fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe staying down this history road before we talk about more of kind of the situation on the ground today, a couple of things I wrote down, because you mentioned, um, who was the presentation of, um, at one point, the immigrants speaking the foreign language, the quote, I'm doing air quotes here, the foreign language were the Americans speaking English for a lot of, yep, that's so crazy. Again, it's just something that from that coming from that perspective is something we never think. Of. I, I think what you're referring to is the quote from this woman named Laure Andry in 1881 who wrote, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me, but who wrote that, you know, the Louisianians knew that the imposition of this foreign language would make them lose their rights and lose their, and lose their identity. And for her, the foreign language was English. Well, look, I knew older monolingual French speakers in Louisiana 
20 years ago. Oh, wow. Who called English speakers uh, Américains. Wow. Like, les, les, les Américains, sure. c'était, les, sure. c'était le monde parlé anglais. <laughs> Uh, so there was still not too terribly long ago that idea in Louisiana among older, older people that non-French speakers were American. And what did that mean? That meant that they were they were outsiders. They weren't us. Yeah. And again, that's one of those filters that's been lost. Crazy fascinating. And actually, another thing, thinking about it now, say, <laughs> again, I got in touch with my mom as soon as you said it. Um, you talked about the Louisiana Purchase. Or what we call the Louisiana Purchase in English. Maybe you could talk about what it is in French and why what it's called in French matters. It's super fascinating. In French, it's called La Vente de la Louisiane, so the, the sale of Louisiana. It, well, it's, it comes back to this idea about the words that we used to describe things in historic or also in contemporary context that makes all the difference because the word by the Louisiana Purchase, that's this idea of we bought Louisiana and right. no, we didn't like, and, and you know, I mean, we learn in school. So we'll go back to first grade. Um, George Washington was our first president. Well, no, he wasn't because that uh, was Thomas Jefferson um, because <laughs> Louisiana wasn't bought until 1803. So, right. so this is idea. No. And again, coming back to the, no matter where you are in the world, so the idea of public education or the idea of education is to sort of mold everybody into a national identity. And any derivation from that becomes politically and economically dangerous. So if in our immersion schools in Louisiana, for example, we taught our children in French, um, ben nous, en 1803, la Louisiane a été vendue aux États-Unis. So in 1803, Louisiana was sold to the United States, as opposed to in 1803, we bought Louisiana from France. Right. So you see, there's a there's there's a there's this 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 reverse side of the coin idea about how the words are crafted and the way that we ingest, I guess, or the way we're programmed into these ideas to create this national identity of. Uh, what is it called? E, uh, e, e probus unum? Sure. Out of one many? Yeah, out of many one, no. right? No, that's super fascinating. And, and again, just through the, the, I think it was the documentary, just showing my ignorance, something that we learn about, the minimal we do learn about, I guess, your story of Louisiana when you're in school. Um, I always, in my head, thought, yeah, Louisiana speaks French because of a bunch of Acadians got kicked out and then had to move there. That's why that's why it spoke French, which is, of course, garbage. And we don't get the, the fact that a lot more Haitians were showing up than Acadians. I'm hoping you can just explain that because it's well, let's two just pieces of the puzzle to, we don't get at all. Yeah. Well, let's just come back to this idea of, of mosaic. So in yeah. the 18th century, so the 1700s, there's, there's, there are Native Americans here. There are French-speaking people from all over the place. They're from all over Europe. They're from all over Canada. They're from all over the Caribbean. And then there are Africans who are brought here by the French who are enslaved and free. So it is a freaking Tower of Babel, all right? It's a Tower of Babel because French is not a unified standardized language at this point. Even though the Académie Française has been created back in the 1660s or whatever, and I could be wrong on that date, 1667, it's a late, the late 17th century. So anyway, they're speaking all these different varieties of French, and there are all these African languages and all these native languages going on, right. and it's, it's a real, real Tower of Babel. By the end of the 18th century, things are becoming a little bit more where everybody can kind of talk to each other. The Creole language has developed out of this uh, clash between all of these African languages and these varieties of French. That's a very specific uh, Louisiana Creole language. And then there are the Acadians who arrive. Now, you, you mentioned the Acadians. I'm a descendant of Acadians. I've often been accused of being anti-Cajun. I am okay. not. I would not be here. I would not be here if the Acadian people had not come to Louisiana. But there were only 3,000 of them that arrived over a 22-year period. There were one small minority that was absorbed into another minority. The largest group 
of which my ancestors were, 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 were part, arrived in 1786. They had been in France for 25 years. That group of people had been in Brittany for 25 years before they came to Louisiana. So at the same time period in the late 18th century, and again, this is how our perception of history is, is really skewed to the right. white perspective. At the same time, the same point in history, the number of Afro descendants in Louisiana was 10 times greater than the total number of Acadians who arrived here over a 22 year period. Yeah. And that's not a story that we learn. Absolutely not. At all. It's not a story Absolutely that we not. learn at all. And these people were the, these, these, these Africans were really the people who gave us everything that now is labeled Cajun, you know, from our food ways to our music to right. all of that stuff. And that's not to say that there are not some some remnants of, sure. of Acadian culture in there, but grosso modo, it's much more African than it is than it is Maritime Canada. Super so fascinating. As we move into the, and you asked about the the Haitians. Yeah. So you know, moving into the American period after 1803, the Haitian Revolution is going to send 10,000 refugees. Uh, to New Orleans, and they basically double the population of the city in 1803. And in that population, that's a mixed population also, because sure. one third of those people are white, one third of them are free people of color, and the other third of them are enslaved. So, you know, that's, and, and this brings us to the other thing about, about, about slavery. Most people associate slavery with plantations in the countryside. Urban slavery was a huge thing too. New Orleans was the largest, was the largest um, slave trading space in the country uh, wow. just before the Civil War. Th that's a whole other piece of, of, of this history because then there's going to be there's going to be a clash among these enslaved people who have already been in Louisiana for generations who are French speaking and Creole speaking and Catholic. When American slaves are being brought here from the American South, beginning really sort of in the 1820s and the 1830s, and so. You know, you've got these two very separate groups of enslaved people that's drawn down linguistic and cultural lines as well. Fascinating. Um, but speaking of, I guess I'm sticking with the topic of kind of groups that I don't, I didn't think about ever until saw kind of your work as the, something we mentioned a couple of times, right, is the Native American. French speaking Native Americans is not a story we get up here in New England. The largest ethnic population of French speakers in Louisiana today is Native Americans. Wow. It's not people who identify as Cajun or who identify as Creole. And that is because they were marginalized, especially as we move into the 20th century when oil exploration and all of that starts happening. They're pushed further and further toward the coast uh, into the marshland. And they were very isolated and did not really have access to education. The Homa Nation, for example, actually, I, I think this probably applies to all of the native populations in Louisiana, did not have high schools until the 1960s. Their education finished in eighth grade because it was determined that they had no need for any education higher than eighth grade because they were not going to go to high school. They were not going to go to university. They were just going to go back to, you know, the, the swamps and, and live off the land. Um, that was the that was the perception. So they were able to maintain their their French much longer than you know the, the people of color or the white people who had access to education much earlier. Uh, so there are communities in Louisiana where French is still the everyday language, but they're isolated Bayou communities, and they were uh, recently some of the most devastated areas of the state when uh, Hurricane Ida passed over on oh, wow. July, on August 29th. Uh, and yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty rough down there. Again, unreal. Something you never ever talk about up here anyway. But um, I did want to talk specifically, I mean, first of all, I mentioned, we'll, we'll put at the end where you can find this. We'll make sure Mike shows everybody where they can find this presentation because I thought it was insane. I seriously thought about just making this entire conversation to just like an one hour. Let's talk about subject by subject. You talked about the presentation. Are you talking Is about it, the, the presentation I did to the South Central Modern Languages Association yes. back in October? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, that was, that was crazy. Uh, but in that presentation, um, you have a chart that when it appeared on my screen, I'm going to be honest with you, I hit the little pause button. 
I did a little, took out my snipping tool, I picked it up, a little copy paste, sent it to Tim Beaulieu, among others, about how much governments invest in heritage language um, as a uh, per, per speaker of that language. Blew my, it was crazy. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. So I saw it incredibly fascinating. I don't have it in front of me, but that was something, all of these things I think about constantly. And I think about how we can, not only how we can re, relaunch French and or Creole in Louisiana, but also how mm -hmm. we make it socially, professionally, educationally, and economically viable. No language can exist if it doesn't have those applications. We can't speak French just because our grandparents spoke it and it becomes a party trick. If it's going to be something that we really value, we have to invest in it. So I started looking at uh, different places where there are minority languages. Wales, for example, Welsh has made a really, really big comeback. Gaelic in Ireland, Maori in New Zealand, Hawaiian, which has just a handful of speakers comparatively, um, and what those governments invest in media production, educational uh, initiatives. And I did a quick Google search, honestly. I, I did not dive deeply into government budgets or anything like that. There's very cursory. It's completely uh, tear upable what I put up there, but it does sort of give us an idea of what those things look like. You know, Ireland is investing heavily in media production. So they have television, they have radio. They're also investing in job creation, in Irish language job creation. They do the same thing for Maori. Uh, Welsh is just exploding. There was a thing that popped up on uh, Twitter or on one of the social media recently about one of the main radio, uh, television stations, I think, in the, in the UK that was for the very first time going to broadcast one of the football uh, rugby uh, matches in Welsh, like being broadcast to the entire, entire country in Welsh. Sure. So, you know, that kind of visibility for, for minority languages is very, very important because it's job creation. It, it, it validates people in, in these languages. And, and unless we are seeing ourselves and hearing ourselves in uh, whatever minority language it is, uh, we sort of have this idea that our language is not a valid language, that the way that we speak is not valid or valorized. So those, those kinds of initiatives, initiatives are very, very important. And all that comes with, with politics. I have had this discussion over and over and over and over again with people sort of in the you know French thing in Louisiana. And people are really scared to try to politicize this because it can create divisions because we're in a majority English-speaking space where Louisiana is a very, very conservative space. So anytime there is discussion about something that doesn't sort of fit in the you know patriotic American box, right? patriotic American box is English. The patriotic American box is not French. That creates conflict and it becomes scary for people to sort of step out and say, look, if, if we want immersion schools, if we want French as a second language, if we want this language to be viable, we have to quit thinking about it as something that's folkloric in the past that our grandparents or our great grandparents spoke on the farm, but that it's a it's a modern language. It's a language of creation. It's a language of economic opportunity. It's a language of mobility. It's a language of sociability. I, I can't tell you the number of times I'm out and about right here with, with my daughter. We only speak French. And people will ask us where we came from. Like, how long have wow. we lived in the States? I'm like, no, we've been here since the colonial period. We're not foreigners. And it's just because people don't hear French spoken around them anymore. We hear Spanish spoken much more and we hear Spanish spoken much more because it's a language of consumerism. And I think that's a major issue. I mean, that, actually that reminds me because you brought up Ireland. I did, a, I did a semester in law school in Ireland and I was very surprised to find out that you could go to, I went to University College Cork. Um, I think you could basically take the entire program if you wanted to, or at least pretty close to the entire program in Gaelic. 
if if you if that was your choice. And I'm going to contrast this because you talked about the economic piece with the tourism programs in schools in Louisiana and their approach to language, which seems insane, completely insane. You're just pushing all my buttons. Um, <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> you are pushing all of my buttons. So I, we both of us have contributed a chapter to this great new book that's coming out uh, from the association. I can never remember. Say it, association Jesse. for the Advancement of French Language and Francophone Culture. In in yeah, exactly. And what's the name of the book again? The title I can't even remember. So I should French, have. We should have yeah. all this stuff in front of us. Yeah, we it's, should, a, it's a it's about the French language experience and Franco American experience and Louisiana experience of French in the United States. All right, hello, Kathy Stein Smith. Thank you so much for putting this together. <laughs> Mike, and Mike, I'll link it below for sure. And 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 everybody else who contributed to uh, this this publication that's going to come out. So I work in culture and tourism. That's my main gig. It's what I've mostly done uh, for, for my career. And I see every day, especially at Laura, because that's where I started and that sort of springboard me to everything else. We're one of the only places in Louisiana that does tours in French every day, or we did before the pandemic. And it's a huge economic impact for us. It's between 15 and 20% of our annual visitation. People come to us and do tours with us. And this is not some kind of witchcraft to sorcery. <laughs> right we do tours in french yeah like right. it's it's legit that simple it's we we offer tours in french and people who speak french come to louisiana because as as you were saying jesse there's this idea you know elsewhere that there is this this living french thing going on down here but when tourists get here from france or from quebec or acadie or anywhere else it's really difficult for them to find people who speak french in the tourism sector they can't go to restaurants or hotels or attractions and speak French. And when they eventually find their way to us, we're really well documented in most of the, the French language travel blogs and the, the, the guidebooks and things like that. Oftentimes for them, after they've been in Louisiana for three, four days, maybe even a week, it's the first time they find people who speak French. But in, in tourism, tourism is the third largest industry for the state of Louisiana. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, the numbers pre-pandemic were like 12 billion with a B dollars of economic right. impact every year. It's freaking giant. None of our hotel restaurant tourism programs in our universities have a language requirement to Same. get a diploma. So it makes crazy. no sense. Absolutely it just not. makes no sense. And, you know, and I've said this, I, this is one of the things that I brought up to the, um, to that group of professors that I presented to back in October I said, you know, you, you tell your students, uh, I looked at some of the websites for their, their language programs on their, in our university websites, and they said, ah, so languages lead to jobs, this, that, and the other, but where? Like, in what pieces of their universities can language be, uh, can, can you study subject matter in language? Where can you study communications, marketing, whatever, in, in target language that would then lead you to a job? In, in one of those in one of those sectors, and tourism is obviously the lowest thing hanging fruit for us here in Louisiana, and and it just it, it's one of those things that boggles my mind. It just boggles my mind. No crazy opportunity there. Not <laughs> people are people are leaving money on the table. That's all I say. I say it all yeah. the time. You know, we're leaving money on the table because it's it's not rocket science. Actually, can you talk about? I think you brought up mentioned the AA. F-L-F-C. You did one of the podcast discussions with Dr. Kathleen Steinsmith, and I think I it was there that you mentioned the Place, Place en Masse. Oh, um, Piace en Masse. Yeah, yeah, Piace yeah. Piace en Masse. This one was Piace en Masse. He's talking about that. It sounds awesome. Well, we did that back in 2012-ish. It's been small, it's been almost 10 years ago. So it was when I was at Codafil, and it was a, a great initiative. I had this amazing group of people around me who were community leaders, all very young, dynamic uh, French speakers. And we, you know, we would sit around, we would uh, meet out of the office, out of, out of my official government office and uh, drink beer and just talk about, you know, all these kinds of things that we could do. And over in Southwest Louisiana in Lafayette, where the Code of Phil office is, there, there still are a lot of people who speak French. And it, it is kind of a dynamic French language space. So 
we had this idea of doing a cash mob, but in French. So there was this, this, this idea once upon a time of these cash mobs where you would identify a small local business and on social media, people would push that out and promote it, tell people or encourage people to go spend like $10, $20 at this one place on a specific day to sort of generate economic activity for these small businesses. And so we set about identifying and inventorying small businesses in Lafayette where you could get service in French, where you could go in, you could order whatever, you could buy in French. Sure. Uh, so we called it Pias en Mas. And that was really inspired by the Radio Radio song, uh, Y'a de la place en masse dans mon jacuzzi. Jacuzzi. Yeah. Do you know the song from there Radio are, Radio? Yes. So there are definitely pictures out there of me um, backstage at a Radio 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 concert this past summer, in fact. They're I cool saw the peeps. They're really, really good. They're really, really good dudes. Three classmates, and we had an absolute blast. I'm um, really, really lucky that in the jobs that I've had, I've been able to to meet and hang out with lots of people like that. So yeah, they're they're really, really cool dudes. Um, but anyway. Yeah, so, so that was this idea. We were just, you know, throwing all the spaghetti on the wall to see what would stick. How could we sure. come up with something? And, you know, we have in Louisiana French, like also in, in Canadian French, and probably where you got in, in, in New England French, the word pièce for, for dollar, P-I-A-S-T-R-E. So if you were going to say it like uh, European, you say piastre. But we just yes. said yes. Yeah. So so we had we had a lot of fun with that. And the first one that we did was at a small organic bakery that unfortunately isn't there anymore. But we tripled in one day, tripled so his great. average daily income. So the the idea there was to show that there's economic power behind speaking French. And we got a lot of media coverage out of that. And just it, it, it's it's sort of you know over you know almost I think we did it for eight or ten months it, it just we kind of lost the momentum of it but and that's that's really one of the hardest things it's really one of the hardest things about all of this is, is maintaining the momentum because you're kind of always behind the eight ball you're always you're you're always trying to think ahead of what is going to become an obstacle to keeping the ball rolling and there sure. are lots and lots and lots of obstacles and they're just there aren't enough people doing this. And one of the other big things about it, and I've had this conversation with quite a number of, of friends in, uh, in Canada who were in different organizations, both governmental and non-governmental and businesses, they, they actually have jobs in those places where people are paid to do this work. None of us are paid to do this work here. Right. It's all right. volunteer. So there are no, apart from Codafil, which is a government agency, there, there are no jobs where people are hired because they speak French to work on French-specific projects. Sure. And that's, a, that's, I think, probably one of our biggest obstacles to, to keeping anything rolling because there's no financial support for the people trying to move everything forward. I know you mentioned on the... There's the North American Francophone podcast. Well, I just type every podcast imaginable while I'm here. Uh, I wrote it down because I thought it was fun. You call yourself a public relations guy that looks at the practical applications of French every day. And I'm curious, as somebody who takes that view, how has that changed with Louisiana and the OIF? What is, does that picture look any differently than it would have 10 years ago? So I'll take this opportunity to say hello to Claire-Marie uh, Brisson also. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And uh, she just, uh, she's, she's doing amazing things at Harvard now. Some, so, some, some low school, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that little school up there. <laughs> so um, yeah, Claire Marie is just doing amazing things. Awesome. There are lots Absolutely. of people doing amazing doing things, amazing which is stuff. really, 100%. really, really cool. But uh, so getting back to this idea of Louisiana and the Organisation Internationale de la Francophonie, and just for any listeners who might not know what that is, it is basically the UN level grouping of French speaking countries, regions, spaces. It's kind of like the Commonwealth, if anybody's familiar with the idea of the British Commonwealth, but on the French side. Louisiana in 2018. 
2018, in October of 2018, was admitted as an observer member of the OIF. And I do have to give a great big shout out to uh, Scott Tilton and Rudy Basne of the new uh, foundation, Absolutely. which I think you've talked to them sure already. Yep. Uh, Scott and Rudy are now back in New Orleans doing great work and doing great things. But, you know, from Paris, because Scott's from New Orleans, they really pushed a lot of that. And it's interesting. I always found it really interesting that, you know, Scott, as a as a young professional uh, from Louisiana in Paris, was able to make that move a lot more than than I was when I was in a government in a government agency position in Louisiana, even meeting in Paris with Abdul Jouf, who was at that point the secretary general, uh, my predecessor at Codafield, David Chirami had done similar things with Jouf and other, and, and even I think with Boutros Boutros Gali when he was there. Oh, cool. So we had lots of friends who um, over the years had tried to help us push this, this forward from many, many different angles, including the, the French government angle. Um, and they were a little bit intransigent in the way that the OIF is structured and allowing that to happen because Louisiana is not a nation state yeah. and membership has always been restricted to nation states. And the only reason, for example, that Quebec or Ontario or New Brunswick can be members of the OIF is because Canada as a nation state is a member. So they're sort of underneath the umbrella of the Canada membership. But the United States, let's admit it, will never, ever, ever become a member of the uh, Organisation Internationale de la Francophonie. So there were all kinds of negotiations that had to take place at the State Department level at the Louisiana state level. And so uh, with Codafil as sort of the leading state agency with Scott and a whole group of people who worked very, very diligently on putting together a, a dossier de candidature. I don't even know how you say that in English. We had to put together this huge dossier to present right. our candidacy to become uh, members of that organization. And I will also give a real big shout out to uh, Michael de Bled, who was working with us as a stagiaire, as an intern sent by Logique, which is an international mobility program out of Quebec that sends students and um, young professionals all over the French-speaking world to do projects. Uh, anyway, so we were able to be accepted as an observer member of the OIF in October of 2018. What does that change? Uh, first of all, that changes our recognition as a space in the world where people speak French. Because before that, if you looked at the official map that's put out by the OIF, Louisiana was not there. Now, we're the only little spot in the United States that appears on that map, which is pretty damn cool. Otherly, it gives us entree, much more entree into the different operators. So the OIF is a huge organization, as you can imagine. Absolutely. Beneath that umbrella are different operators. There is the AUF, which is the Agence Universitaire de la Francophonie. So that's universities. There is the APF, the Agence des Parlementaires Francophones. So these are legislators. So they're either in, in a parliament or in a legislature somewhere. There is also the Agence Internationale des Maires Francophones. So that's the International Agency of the Francophone Mayors. And there are a couple of other, oh, there's TV5Monde, which is part of that. And there is an economic piece, which I can't remember what it's actually called right now. But anyway, um, so all of those different operators do projects and they have meetings as chapters and as groups. So that gives us entree into some of those kinds of initiatives. And uh, there, there are already some things happening at the university level, which is always kind of the easiest thing to to get going. And at the parliamentary level uh, with some exchanges and some some, some, some partenariats, some partnerships, and some accords. We have, we're very lucky in Louisiana to have, we're, we're actually the only state in the United States that has a bilateral accord with the government of France. That's so awesome. And that's existed since the early 1970s. And it's a pretty heavy document that outlines how Louisiana works directly with France, specifically in the areas of education and culture. So this is what allows us to bring from the French National Ministry of Education to Louisiana, their federal level teachers, and they uh, teach in our immersion schools. 
So they come to us on a uh, J-1 visa for three years with the possibility to extend for five. Uh, and they are, you know, some of the, the main people who are, who are working in our, our French immersion schools in Louisiana. Well, this has been way, way fun, but there's one more question I got to make sure to ask. I told you, we, we, uh, you, you said oh. it first. We could talk I for mean, seven days. I mean, I mean we're, we're not even, we're, we're just kind of starting to scratch the surface. We sure point. are. I mean, in, but uh, I've already blown past the time I told Mike I would limit this to. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I do need to ask this question because I think it was very cool. Because um, Gregory Chabot, uh, kind of a legendary figure up mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, playwright, a giant in you know, the Franco-American community, once said that somebody asked him about preservation and he said something along the lines of preservation was for meat. And it was a very different view. And I know you talked about not seeking preservation, but a French language ecosystem. How do we get there? The word preservation, uh, I'm right there with uh, Greg A. Um, so I, I salute him and all the work that, that he did. I actually had the privilege of meeting him during one of his trips to Louisiana and chatting awesome. with him. And he was an extraordinary, extraordinary human being, a défendeur de la langue française, a défendeur de tout ce qui est francophonie uh, en Amérique du Nord. And to me, yeah, the word preservation always gives me pause because to me, if you preserve something, you put it in a jar in formaldehyde and you stick it on a shelf and you look at it every now and again as an artifact. No language can exist in a vacuum. No language has ever existed in a vacuum. They're, they're constantly evolving. And one of the things that I began to really understand and realize in bringing my daughter up only speaking French to her was this idea of how language exists in contexts and how you have to have an entire ecosystem to support that. And that ecosystem is the home, that ecosystem is the school, that ecosystem is, the, um, is, is, is businesses, it's, it's church, it's sports, it's friends, it's jobs, it's all of those pieces. Because if you, so let's just think about, think about a house. So in your house, let's think about a very simple house. In a simple house, you have a kitchen, a bathroom, maybe two bedrooms, a living room, and a dining room. All right. Yeah. So... In each of those spaces, there is specific language that's used. So there's a language, okay. there's, there's language, there, there are words and vocabulary for the kitchen, there's words sure. and vocabulary for the bathroom, for the bedrooms, for the living room and the dining room. If you begin to take all of those pieces away, if you take the kitchen away, if you take the bedroom away, if you take the bathroom away, at some point, you're only left with one room. And in that one room, you can't communicate about any of the other things in oh, the yeah. house. Because you only have that piece. If we look at this idea of French immersion in our schools, for example, for 99.9% of our kids, even though they may be of a French or Creole speaking heritage in Louisiana, it's it is generationally removed from them. So French for them is something that's artificial that happens within the walls of the school. So outside the school, they don't know how to go to the grocery store in French. They don't know how to go to the bank in French. They don't know how to go to the doctor in French because all of that is vocabulary and language that you absorb naturally by osmosis. That's not stuff that you learn in a classroom. And we constantly are absorbing language. It never, ever stops. In, In talking with you right now, I'm absorbing bits and pieces of the way that you speak. You're doing the same thing. And we do that unconsciously. It's completely subconscious. And when you take all of those pieces away, you're left with a very isolated way of speaking. And so one of the things that I argue against all of the time is this concept of uh, North American French, Louisiana French being (laughs) so different and separate languages from uh, metropolitan French or any other varieties of French. And the reason that, for, especially speaking very specifically about the Louisiana context, is exposure to, to that language. Because you can take a first language French speaker from here, an, an older lady who might be 80 years old, for example, sure. who spoke French in her childhood, who spoke French with her parents, who hasn't spoken French in a very long time, you can put her in front of 
television and she can watch Downton Abbey with those very London society accents and she will be able to understand that and follow it. Sure. But if you put her in front of the same kind of show that comes from France or Quebec, she's not going to be able to follow it. And why is that? It's because she's not been exposed continuously to other varieties of, of speaking. So it's not that it's a different language. Right. It's just she doesn't have those contexts and her ear is not trained anymore to automatically adjust to varieties because you're from way up there and I'm from way down here. We're both speaking English and we both have our particularities for our accents and our words, right. but we still understand each other because okay. we're constantly exposed to varieties of English. We can have a conversation with somebody from, from Australia or London or South Africa or anywhere else in the English speaking world and our ears automatically adjust. There might be some vocabulary words or expressions that might mean something different in sure. that variety, but it's still comprehensible. And when we are able to make those little adjustments, we get along just fine. What happens is that when um, les Franco-Américains up there by you or les Louisiane down here by me are faced with a variety of French that they're not familiar with because they just haven't been exposed to it enough, they immediately shut down because they've been told in English that that's a different French that is not comprehensible. And that's an assimilation tactic that was invented to get people to speak, to, to quit speaking French. Absolutely crazy. But Joseph, this has been a blast. If, if people want to get more information, either find that presentation that I keep hyping all the time because I think it's amazing. Or if people want to say, learn more about Laura, where can, where can we send it? Oh my goodness. So my, uh, you can just look Joseph in, in YouTube type Joseph Louisiana, uh, Joseph Dunn, UNN, Louisiana in the YouTube search and uh, you'll find stuff in English, French, and Creole. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm uh, very active on Twitter, but mostly in French. Uh, so that is Louisiane1742. And uh, other than that, I do have a blog that I write, haven't put anything on in a while, but that's louisianaperspectives.wordpress.com. So, Very cool. And Laura is lauraplantation.com. And so there's lots of stuff on Laura also, uh, our, our social media channels, all that. I, I'm easily findable. I, <laughs> I, if I ever commit a crime, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. It's, no, it's yeah. going to blow up. So we'll make sure to link all these things. Joseph, thank you so much, sir. Bah, merci à toi. C'était vraiment un plaisir et un privilège de parler avec toi ce soir. Merci. Merci beaucoup. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.